resilience. You've just <laughs> got to, you've just got to keep at it. You know, I've hit more glass ceilings and had more doors slammed in my face. You know, and I've just kept going. Um, it, it's not, it's not easy. And I think resilience has been, you know, key to a huge part of my success. That I just was not going to go away. The Born Global Coffee Pod series is powered by Advance a professional network for overseas Australians, fueling change at home and around the world. When Aussies step out of their comfort zone and drive ideas, talent and ambition internationally, I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of irrepressible optimism. Through the 2021 Advanced Series, I'm going to introduce you to the next household names, triggering the waves of change that are breaking upon our shores down under. What makes so many Aussies take their ingenuity, hope and grit to faraway places? How can we celebrate and support them more readily? And who are these global success stories when they're at home? At a time when leadership can feel in turmoil, let's lift ourselves and future generations up with stories of Aussies born global with the courage to become the change the world needs. Today, I have the distinct privilege of interviewing two incredible female scientists, Professors Jill Banfield and Karen Day. Professor Jill Banfield is a mineralogist turned microbiologist who won the Advanced Life Science Award in 2020. Her pioneering work has created the platform to explore the role of gut bacteria in health and disease in humans. She also has made some phenomenal contributions to geoscience. She's been awarded across America and Australia, and since 2001, she's been a researcher and professor at the University of California, Berkeley, with an appointment in the Earth and Environmental Sciences at Lawrence Berkeley's National Laboratory, and a role heading the Microbial Research Initiative within the Innovative Genomics Institute. Joining Jill on today's podcast is Professor Karen Day, the Advanced Life Science Award winner in 2015. Karen is a distinguished malaria researcher dedicated to the improvement of global health. She's worked right across the UK, the US, including at New York University, chairing the Department of Medical Parasitology. She led the development of a master's program in global public health right around the time when the Millennium Development Goals were inspiring governments, NGOs and citizens alike. And she joined the University of Melbourne in 2014 as Dean of Science to lead Australia's premier science faculty. Please welcome Professors Jill Banfield and Karen Day. Professor Jill Banfield and Professor Karen Day, it is such a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for making the time to talk. I feel like with so many interesting uh, things that you have your fingers in, I can only start by asking both of you, what's top of mind for you right now? What's keeping you up at night and what are you thinking about? I might come to you, uh, Karen, first. Oh, look, I think, um, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic and uh, just I think the issues around public health and, you know, how in a way we we let things slide somewhat um, and, you know, you start to see we've managed very well in Australia, but I think all of us who are in public health know that there's some work to be done to rebuild some systems and structures. So I think that's front of my mind. And I think probably one of the big questions for me at the moment is the CDC type concept of whether we should be having a regional view of of these types of emerging infections versus the sort of state uh, approach that's that's really been uh, at the forefront of the Australian response at the moment and how we go forward, what is the best way forward. So those are the things that are are really uh, interesting me at the moment. That's big, curly questions. I can understand why they'd be keeping you awake at night. Uh, Jill, how about you? 
Yeah, I guess I have a very different sort of an answer. Um, my lab has been involved a little bit in the COVID research, and obviously we are heavily impacted by the um, inability to work in the lab in university setting, but um, I wouldn't say that's top of my mind at this instant. I'm really excited about research and the kinds of things we're discovering, looking in the subsurface, looking in soil, and how we can take advantage of what we learn through study of natural ecosystems to um, you know, just really big problems like climate change. An example would be trace gas emissions from soils. So through understanding of microbial ecosystems, can we do something about the problems that we face today, including related to agriculture and just in natural landscapes as well? Brilliant. Uh, before we catch up to like the moment in time you're at right now, I feel like we've got to take everyone back and understand a little bit about the remarkable journey you've respectively been on. Um, Jill, I want to ask you first, you know, is um, actually I might... Yeah, I'll come to you first, Jill. I'm intrigued. How does a how does a mineralogist become a microbiologist? What's sort of the the journey that one takes? Is that a normal progression? What inspired that? Well, honestly, I had very little exposure to biology when I was young, and uh, I was fascinated by the earth and earth sciences and the history of the planet, and got really interested in minerals and went off in that direction pretty quickly, and never really took any biology courses, but. I started to work on soil actually way back when I was at ANU and found these things that just looked so peculiar and nobody had ever seen them before. And I'm like, what on earth are we dealing with here? And the only thing I could think of are these are cells, that there's actually cells in my weathered rock. And so I went to the botany department and I showed them these things and they were like, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, we don't really think about organisms in the context of earth system processes, especially at that time, it wasn't a normal thing to think about. And I started to learn a little bit about biology and I thought, wow, this is so cool. And uh, years went by and finally I decided, nope, I'm going to go buy some textbooks and start to learn about, you know, how life works. And really jumped in at the molecular era's takeoff point and just became absolutely transfixed by it. And so just over time, moved more and more into the biosciences. You've probably got many choices here, but what's one of the most mind-boggling stats we can share with listeners who are perhaps less acquainted with mineralogy or microbiology uh, about your research and kind of the heart of what you've discovered? I would say maybe uh, by applying the kinds of molecular methods that we really have been involved in developing to natural ecosystems that were very little studied, such as the subsurface and deep subsurface, we found huge numbers of branches of the tree of life nobody really even knew existed. And that was extremely fun and exciting. So we actually published in 2016 a new view of the tree of life, which, of course, has been superseded since. But it was a really um, exciting time and really um, had, I think, pretty significant impact and certainly has um, led to a lot of new areas that uh, follow up on those observations and discoveries relating to the kinds of organisms that are out there, not just normal things, but really peculiar, tiny um, organisms that can't live by themselves. And so really an expanded view of diversity and how microbes function in the world. Incredible. And Karen, I want to understand the trajectory. You've, you've gone on an incredible public health journey, um, but I gather there was a pretty pivotal moment early in your career as a postdoctoral researcher in Papua New Guinea. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that started or catalyzed the career you've gone on? Going Just going back a little bit, I think I was... Uh, I benefited from the fact that uh, Gus Nossel decided to set up a tropical medicine research program at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, and that's where I did my PhD. And as part of that PhD, I got to go to Papua New Guinea and 
suddenly I, a whole new world opened up for me. So in the same way Jules sort of learned all about soil microbes, this world of public health and combining science with public health, that really captivated me. And I think that's driven my career. So I got to combine my love of science, love of adventure and, and this desire to change the world. And you, I, I really came to the conclusion that um, as a scientist, I could make more dramatic change than potentially as a clinician uh, if we you know, if we harnessed uh, the power of science to solve problems. And that's really what I've spent my career doing. So I'd love to talk to both of you about the, the power of science and the work that you do. It's an interesting time to be having conversations about that because to some degree, we've touched on COVID already, there's probably never been a greater level of general public awareness around science, around medicine, around understanding our interconnectedness at a planetary level. And at the same time, there's a there's sort of a another school of thought that's talking about the war, war on science, the misinformation, the struggle to get cut through with climate change research, et cetera. How do you describe the time that you're working in and through? Jill? I would say it's a time that's in transition, thank goodness. <laughs> After four years of the Trump administration, we're in a new era, and I think about time there's going to be a really strong pivot toward really thinking about climate and climate science and what to do about it using basic science. And I think what we've learned from the COVID vaccine is that science that's conducted in advance of some particular need can lay an incredibly important foundation for, this, for the development of things like vaccines in super fast time. So it's really critical that we invest not just in science directed to solve immediate problems, but basic science. I think we've really come to, to learn that. Karen? I, you know, just picking up on that thread from Jill, I think that link between basic science and translational science is really tremendously important. And we've got to make sure that balance is there. I mean, we really wouldn't be having these messenger RNA vaccines uh, for uh, SARS-CoV-2 without that very good basic science that's gone on for probably some, you know, 20 or more years. So I think they're the lessons to be learned. And, I, and like Jill, climate science is clearly, you know, it's got to come to the forefront. I'd ask both of you about uh, being trailblazing women within the fields that you're in. We talk a lot about science, technology, engineering and maths education. We continue to talk about how important that is to the future of Australia, to the world, to economies. And we also see those really troubling statistics about how few women we have studying those subjects and pursuing careers. Do you feel like there's been progress made in over the course of your career? And what more do you think we need to do to encourage more women to get into STEM? Karen, I might come to you first. Look, I think we, we know there's always that difficult transition around um, having, having children right at the time when, you know, scientific careers are, are being judged, uh, whether individuals can advance or not in the profession. And I think there's been a lot of effort over the last five, ten years to, to give more assistance to women, to keep them in the profession. So I think we have no trouble bringing women into the profession. It's been keeping them in. And another thing that I've observed is um, we've really done very little about having senior women at the top of organisations. And I really do think that makes a huge difference. Um, so quite often I see um, so-called, you know, male champions of change will go out and recruit a whole load of 30-year-old women. And, you know, this happened to some of my trainees. And, and then 
sort of what happens next, nobody really quite measures that. And I think having senior women at the top of the profession as role models, as leaders, is extremely important. It's not the only thing, but it's, it's one thing I think that has to still change. And if I can ask, just piggyback on that quickly, uh, the women there and they're not getting the opportunities or as part of the challenge that we, we've lost women through that career progression and we've got to do a better job at helping them, you know, transition through childbearing years and into the, the latter stages of their career and the hierarchy of you know, academia and, and various research institutions. Look, it's probably, you know, it is both that we're losing women along the way. And then I think there still is a glass ceiling in, in certain places for women. And interestingly, in, I've observed through my work in developing countries, it's less so sometimes where we have these issues in, in what I might call developed countries, that there's just a glass ceiling still. Jill, what's your take? Well, my first thing to say was when I went to um, the US first to do my PhD, there were virtually no women in faculty positions in geoscience departments. And within five or seven years, it was pretty commonplace. And when I went to the US first, there were no women that I know of in geoscience that had children, and now it's quite commonplace. So I think it's changed enormously, and we should be glad of that. I think we still have a problem that um, Karen didn't directly mention, but I think it's maybe the biggest problem is unconscious bias. We've really wrestled with trying to understand how that affects, for example, recruitment processes, hiring, where it comes in, how to recognise it. Letters of recommendation, for example, are just sometimes poster childs for people who are writing the stuff that's just totally not coming from the conscious but is really... Um, underselling the women candidates. And so I think we have to really work hard at dealing with unconscious bias. And I think that leads me to my next point is, yes, we've done a great job with women, but I think at least in the US, we have huge problems still with broader diversity. Mm. And I think having worked in the US and, and now come back to Australia, I think the US is certainly um, well ahead of where we are in Australia. I think we've, we've still got work to do in, you know, progressing some of the junior women through. We're not in as good a place as the US would be my observation. The two of you have mentioned there, both of you have worked, you know, across a, a variety of institutions, obviously across Australia and the US. Can I ask your experience just with the respective academic institutions, how you found getting funding for research, et cetera? Well, you know, what would you say is the strength of the US system and, and Australia and what lessons can be learnt from, from each? Jill? Yeah, the, the strength of the US system is that it doesn't require the research to, in my opinion, to directly tie into some applications so you don't have to have an industry involved. I mean, that's less relevant. And so I, I guess I stayed in the US for one reason that's pretty easy to explain, and that is if you have a good idea, you can make the case you can do anything here. There's no, there's no boundaries. There's, there's been good research funding and not so many restrictions so that you can actually you know, go in places that I think would be very difficult to go in the Austrian system. What do you put that down to? I mean, I've, having worked um, in the UK, US and, and now Australia, I would say there's, um, well, my observation is there's a risk adversity here that um, it's hard often to get very new ideas through and certain fields dominate just because it's a smaller pool. I think the translational aspect that things have to be um, related to potentially industry or, or health is very strong here and a very strong drive. And, and I, as a former Dean of Science, 
am concerned that basic science, um, you know, can be left behind. And, and that's not right because Australians are extremely good at basic science. They've made many fundamental discoveries. But, you know, it, it is a smaller place, a smaller pool of money, a lot of competition for it, a lot of very good scientists here. Can I ask you both, you've led extraordinary careers, been, you know, incredibly successful in your respective fields. If you had to distill down, you know, the the journey that you've had and the experiences to date and sort of the lessons that have held you in good stead, navigating key decision points, tough moments, you name it, as a bit of advice to give to emerging leaders or leaders who are perhaps, you know, thinking through some of the decision points you've faced yourselves, what would be the big bit of advice you'd offer? Karen? Oh, look, you know, resilience, you've just got to keep at it. You know, I've hit more glass ceilings and had more doors slammed in my face, you know, and I've just kept going. It's not easy. And I think resilience has been, you know, key to a huge part of my success that I just was not going to go away. (laughs) Jill, I feel like you're in furious agreement with that. Oh, absolutely. If you asked me to say one word, I would be on the tip of my tongue, it was resilience. (laughs) It's just because it's so obviously the right answer. I mean, there's a lot of things that contribute to success in science, no no, no question at all, but being able to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and go on. I think it's something that Australians prepare themselves for one way or another better than maybe some other places. I think it is like, I mean, for me, perhaps growing up the way I did in country town in the 1960s and 70s, it's... You know, it's just something that's that's sort of comes with the territory built into you. Yes, comes with the territory. So I think the resilience is is absolutely one of the most important things. There's lots of other things that go into success in science as well, but that mm. is critical. I mean, you run into, you know, a mean review or a proposal rejection or somebody looks at you in a way or doesn't listen to you. I mean, there's just so many things you just have to say. You know, put your head down and get on with it. That's probably the advice I would give to most people and have given to many people over the years. Is put your yes. head down. Get on with it. I was going to say to our male trainees as well as our uh, our female trainees, you know, just just telling them exactly as Jill said, when you get that terrible review of paper and you know you're right, you have to fight it out and uh, and keep going. That feels easier said than done, though. I feel like resilience is one of those words that we use a lot and then the practice of actually doing it when you get the mean review or the door slammed in your face, as both of you have touched on, is... It, it, it is. It's, it's easier said than done. What, what strategies have you used? Have you relied on mentors? Have you had particular, um, I guess, techniques to shake it off and be able to move on and, and refocus yourselves? Has anything you've applied really worked or held you um, in good regard? Uh, look, I think for me, mentors were, were really important. They, you know, if some really smart people believe in what you're doing and, and how you're doing it, it gives you that confidence I think to to go against the tide and and fight for what you believe in so I think having good mentors is hugely important yeah I I mean I think it's something you learn over the course of your career but in my case I feel I didn't have any choice I had to succeed you know I had a family I was living in the US my husband wasn't able to work and you just had you just had to get through it and over the years you do learn the strategies to you know to see your way through and and to understand for example that you know, an experiment that doesn't work or a result that doesn't go as you hope. It's it's a good thing. Just embrace it and um, learn from it. And it takes a while to develop the skill to do that. But it, you see it comes um, out well in the end, then mm. it's easier the next time and the next time. 
Karen, I wanted to ask you, you led the development of um, Masters in Global Public Health around the time of the um, Millennium Development Goal Agenda. I'm interested just in, in being so close to that in thinking through global collaboration in a public health context. What lessons have you learned from witnessing that process up close and, and thinking about that at a high level that can inform the way that the world's thinking about tackling the SDGs and the Sustainable Development Goals? Oh, you know, I think the Millennium, uh, I came into that sort of world of the Millennium Development Goals at the time when malaria had been very, very poorly funded. People had almost given up because we'd had um, the global eradication campaign fail and numbers of uh, people infected were just increasing really dramatically. And the Millennium Development Goals just galvanised key organisations around the world to tackle big problems. And it was collaboration. It was just fantastic collaboration. And also, you know, people raised money in a way they could never have raised it before because of this momentum that the Millennium Development Goals uh, brought to these problems. And But clearly, um, science and technology provided the interventions that then could be deployed through uh, global agencies and with, you know, Gates funding and funding from even smaller organisations. And that was particularly for us in malaria, insecticide-treated bed nets. So it was just an incredible time to see, you know, a disease that had been so neglected suddenly get enormous attention. We would attend UN General Assembly and malaria was, was a topic that was discussed. And you'd have leaders of the world signing up to, um, to try and eliminate malaria or at least re- reduce the burden of disease in their country. So it's just an incredible time of collaboration. A hundred percent. And I wanted to ask you, what did you learn from, from that in terms of collaborations where we use a lot, we're hearing it in business, we're hearing it almost across the board, whether we're talking about it, you know, between sectors, whether we're talking about it within our own team environments. Um, what does collaboration done well look like? What are the key features that you've seen that leaders listening can be mindful of going, we need a bit more of that? Or if I could think about that structure or process or way of doing things, we might be able to harness a little bit more of the collective capability. Look, I think finding that common goal, um, you know, whether it might be um, doing something about climate change or malaria or whatever it is, find the common goal, understand that you have the technical solutions, and then you you raise the money and the the human power to do something about it. It's it's I think getting that agreement to do something about the problem in the first instance and seeing a way through to um, solving it. You've got to bring those things together. Definitely. Jill, you opened up at the start by saying how excited you are about research, which I love, you know, in amongst the, uh, sometimes I feel like the all too doom and gloom dominated news cycle. It's really encouraging to see that level of positivity and optimism. What's next in your field of endeavour? What are you excited about breaking ground on? No geological pun intended. (laughs) Yeah, well, it might get a bit granular if I answer that with, um, with research question, but, you know, I'm really excited about the full diversity of things that are out there, not necessarily living. So I've been working on viruses that infect bacteria and um, viruses that infect archaea, which are two of the domains of life that we are not part of. So bacteria and archaea are one, uh, two of the three domains of life, eukaryotes being the third. So um, I'm really interested in 
how they've evolved. We've been finding extraordinarily large and complex viruses of bacteria and archaea that just do things we never imagined, but have genes and pathways that we wouldn't expect to find on them. And to some extent, they, they blur the boundary between life and not life. But I think they have huge potential as well. And so just an example of, of a very direct application of um, virus encoded genes is the CRISPR-Cas systems that we've been working with the, a collaborator here in the US, Jennifer Doudner, to uh, test and show performance in genome editing and eukaryotes and plants. And these are coming from viruses. So we have a lot to learn about basic biology, about how genes move around in the environment and how these entities impact the functioning of organisms and communities of organisms and ecosystems and what, what they're doing that we didn't imagine was possible before. So a little bit of discovery-based science and the excitement of finding new things is always good in the mix. That's awesome. And can I ask, how do you determine what you want to put your effort and energy into? Like, how do you work out what the next question you're going to go after is? Because I imagine there's so much choice. There is a lot of choice. It's what really comes across the view screen any particular time, I guess, the new things that turn up. I mean, I've migrated across many fields of science and many parts of biology, and it's just amazing what you can discover and, and becomes captivating. And then I just move effort onto that and then the next thing. And, and so you migrate through the field, driven by discoveries that come about through studying natural ecosystems and taking them to pieces and really trying to understand what's there and how they work. I love the fascination both of you had for understanding the intricacies of how things work. Very grateful for that both of you show off in the way that you do in the, uh, the leadership environments you're in. I wanted to ask you both on the leadership front, you know, based on your experiences, one of the things uh, very uh, conscious of with this podcast is making sure ideas translate into action. And so I wanted to ask each of you if you can encourage people listening to our conversation today to take one action in order to become a better leader, to become more impactful in the work that they're doing. What would you encourage people to, to do? Oh, look, I think I've been really impressed with uh, Tony Fauci. And, and so the word integrity comes to mind. Um, you know, faced with a very difficult situation of, of a president um, whom he disagreed with and, and he had to deal with that. And I, I read the um, article in the New York Times, you know, his, of what happened to him in that process. And he, he was, you know, threatened, etc. And, you know, in the face of that, he showed great integrity and leadership. And I think that's what the world needs at the moment. More integrity and leadership. I like that. So be true yeah. to what you believe in and, and steadfast. I think that resilience piece comes through in that answer again. Yeah, Jill? Well, it definitely on my top 10 pieces of advice to people working in science and maybe more broadly is integrity and honesty. Don't lie. Mm. You know, just no matter what, stick with the truth. And, uh, you know, I absolutely think that that's a great example. But I guess I would answer a different way because it's not quite what was on my mind when you asked the question. I think um, leaders need to be much more educated and aware of the issues of diversity in science and more broadly. And I mentioned un unconscious bias already. I think we're just educating ourselves at the moment about the forms that takes and what we can do about it. My lab's actually completely changed how it does things to try and be sure that we are respecting diversity and being inclusive and, and, and establish equity as best as we possibly can. And this is, I think, something that needs to be taken on board much more seriously and broadly than has been until very recently, at least. 
Absolutely. And can I ask, can you give an example of one of the things your lab's done differently that's made an improvement in, in diversity and inclusion in your workplace? Um, it's, it's partly what we've done and partly what is being done around us, but I would say um, being very um, vocal about the issues of diversity and equity and inclusivity. Um, specific action we have is now to basically interview every postdoctoral applicant that looks like they're qualified to give them a hearing rather than me just going, you know, a first impression, no, no, yes. And, and just really requiring actually to the best extent possible people talk about what they've done in terms of contributing to diversity, uh, not that they're necessarily a minority, but that they've reached out and tried to contribute um, to moving the broader field forward. And so I think that um, has made people think about things a lot and a lot more vocal about where the issues are. And so um, it's an experiment in progress, but we are de definitely having the conversations. And I think that to be a good leader, you have to be um, aware of the issues and prepared to do something about it. Absolutely. I love that. Got to be aware of the issues and be prepared to not walk past it. Karen, you've touched mm -hmm. on diversity and inclusion too in talking about glass ceilings within science. Is there anything that you've seen in practice in your own career and the places you've worked that's made a really meaningful difference to moving the dial on diversity and inclusion? Oh, look, I, I think I come back to, for, uh, I think culture of an organisation is set from the top down. And, and I think I, I I've seen where you have, you know, strong diversity leadership at the top of an organisation. It just filters down as being that's what you should do. And I think that's, um, you know, really connecting to what Jill said. But I, I've, because I've been at the top of organisations and the leadership roles I've had, you see what a difference it makes when you have leader, leaders in the executive of an organisation who really believe in these things, uh, believe in diversity, believe in promoting women, et cetera. It, it just percolates right down through the organisation. Absolutely. Well, I can't thank you both enough for the time that you've given today to share these insights, uh, your own experiences. I'm so inspired by the work that you're doing and the way that you're bringing others with you too. I think one of the things that was a through line in what both of you shared was that focus on collaboration, uh, on the creating a really diverse ecosystem around you as we just finished touching on there, the importance of encouraging the next generation to follow and finding a way to make sure that they don't face the same challenges and roadblocks that you had to find a way through over your career. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your leadership and thank you for your time today. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.